content warning. This episode talks about acts of violence, including murder, carried out by law enforcement officials. Please exercise self-care and check in with yourself before choosing to listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a special episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Momstead, a podcast where I, Brittany Ashley, interview a guest about the loss of their parent or sibling, and then do a deep dive into a pop culture representation of grief and loss. Today's episode is slightly different. I'm still interviewing a guest who lost a parent, and we're still talking about grief and loss. However, my guest will be talking about a group of people within not only our country, but specifically in Los Angeles, that has killed people's parents, partners, family members, friends, and neighbors, law enforcement officers. It can't be overstated how much trauma has been inflicted on communities of color by law enforcement officers. They've taken away countless lives and then left families fatherless, motherless, brotherless, sisterless, and traumatized and grieving. Their power goes unchecked, and there are rarely consequences or even changes. My guest today is Cerise Castle, an LA-based journalist who's worked in TV for Vice News, in radio for LA's NPR station KCRW, and whose reporting has been featured in the LA Times, LA Magazine, The Daily Beast, and most recently for LA's independent and nonprofit journalism site, Knock LA. It's very likely you've heard Cerise's name this year. She's done incredibly courageous and in-depth reporting, unfortunately, even at the expense of her own safety. This is our interview. So yeah, so first I would love to just ask you a, I guess, somewhat broad question about the role that journalism plays when a law enforcement officer kills a civilian. How can a journalist positively impact the communities affected? And then inversely, how can a journalist negatively impact the communities that are affected? I think most often we see journalists doing the negative impact on communities when they're reporting on civilians being killed by the police. And we see that in the news coverage, essentially parroting press releases that are given out by police and sheriff's departments without really questioning the narrative. I think if you look at reporting on instances like that, especially in Los Angeles, nine times out of 10, it's just pretty much verbatim what the department statement is. It's really easy to affect positive change. And the way to do that is really just doing your job as a journalist. And that's being skeptical and asking questions. You shouldn't take anyone at face value with what they say, whether that's a police officer or just a random person on the street that you're talking to. You should be asking questions and getting proof of everything and questioning everything that they tell you. That That's like when it comes to the police line, you can do that by going and talking to the family, like asking questions about who this person was. I think often what we see is um, journalists will pick up on like any like negative things that may have happened in someone's life and blow that out of proportion. Um, like if someone maybe was arrested for like being too drunk one night in public, like who amongst us hasn't had too much to drink and maybe they'll use the mugshot for the photo. And it's really easy to not do that. It's just like contacting family members and finding out who they were as a person. I mean, someone's life is a lot more than, you know, one contact with 
law enforcement and that really helps tell the story and your story will be better if you if you just do your job what do you think that the resistance to use an active voice in some of these headlines like deputy involved shooting why wouldn't the headline be exactly what it is which is deputy killed or shot this person yeah i think they just don't want to ruffle any feathers um i've been in newsrooms in mainstream newsrooms where i've written headlines like that and they've been changed by editors and i think the reason for that is that a lot of newsrooms they they depend on the police department for different things whether that be issuing so-called press passes by departments which which is a whole other crooked corrupt conversation or you know like providing security to their to their like physical property like if someone breaks into your station like you're going to call the police so maybe they don't necessarily want to have a bad relationship with the department which is bad i mean you shouldn't be beholden to anyone as a journalist because then what good is your reporting and have you found that there are some places that are willing to quote unquote, take the risk and ruffle the feathers? Yeah, I think you'll see that in independent and so-called alternative news media outlets like Knock LA, which is where I published um, my series on the sheriff's department. I think you really have to go, I mean, really for any kind of news, you can't really trust the mainstream media. They all sort of have their own little agenda going on behind the scenes. And, you know, that's, that's a very real thing. I've, I've worked for those places and I've seen it myself. Yeah. And speaking of that, I mean, you are a journalist and reporter who has certainly impressed many people specifically. I mean, in this last year, you've been really a key figure in educating a lot of Los Angeles about what's going on. Um, to name a few things, you brought to light the racist environment at KCRW when you worked there. You wrote about law enforcement forcibly removing unhoused families during the pandemic. You were on the ground covering many protests and marches for BLM. You yourself were even shot with a rubber bullet and had to go to the hospital while you were wearing your press pass. And I'm curious of the majority of the pieces that you covered, what do you feel like the common theme slash like the common denominator was in a lot of these pieces? Injustice, really. Um, every all of those stories, I think the the underlying theme is someone was wronged and they they were trying to see some kind of reparation for what the, what they had suffered. To segue into your Knock LA fifteen part investigative piece about uh, the deputy gangs within the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, which was massively comprehensive and super educational. What made you want to zoom in on deputy gangs specifically? Well, there are a couple of things that happened in my life that sort of led to this series being written. I grew up here in Los Angeles, um, so I'd always heard about deputy gangs just from like older family members. My brother, when I was like 12 years old, told me a story about the Vikings and how I needed to watch out for Los Angeles County sheriffs that were white with shaved heads because that meant they were in that gang. And I'd always been fascinated by it. It, I mean, even as a kid, it just sort of struck me as strange that police officers were in gangs, gangs that 
you know, we had officers coming to our school like every semester telling us not to join gangs, but the cops themselves were in a gang. That didn't really make any sense. So I'd always looked for more information about these deputy gangs, but aside from a few archived articles, I couldn't really find anything. And every couple of years, I, I would go back to the library because um, it would pop up in my mind again, and I'd look and I'd try to see if I could find some information, but there never was any. So fast forward to the summer of 2020, and George Floyd had been murdered um, at the hands of a police officer, and protests were erupting around the world, um, including here in Los Angeles. And I went out, and as you mentioned, I was shot um, by a law enforcement officer with a less than lethal munition. And that put me on bed rest for several months. And I wasn't able to go out and do the work that I had been so accustomed to doing. So I was looking for a project to occupy my time. Shortly after George Floyd was killed, a young man named Andres Guardado was killed here in Los Angeles in Gardena by two um, Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies who are believed to be prospects of a deputy gang. When I heard that, my ears just sort of perked up and I was like, okay, I think this is going to be my project. It's time for me to find out everything I possibly can about deputy gangs in Los Angeles. So I started filing public record acts requests, and I struck gold when I found a list that the County of Los Angeles keeps of litigation related to deputy gangs. So I got my hands on that list, and I sort of used that as a roadmap to track down deputies that were involved in these gangs, um, additional uh, people that had been killed at the hands of officers that had been alleged to be in these gangs. And after uncovering all that information, I pieced it together into what is now a tradition of violence on Knock LA. You're a detective without... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's wild. Like, I truly can't imagine what that process was like because you were able to span, like, decades and a dozen different gangs. Yeah, there were a couple of people that were really instrumental in putting this together. I would say probably the biggest people that helped were attorneys. Um, as you can imagine, there are several attorneys that sort of these cases are their bread and butter, excessive force or wrongful death. That's they come, they take basically like all of them on in Los Angeles. And the further back in time you go, the less and less um, attorneys there are that actually did stuff like that. Um, and that's just a product of, you know, the social climate at the time, laws at the time. So as I was contacting these attorneys, they had a wealth of information as far as historical context for these gangs. They were able to point me in the direction of um, other cases that I may not have heard of that I should take a look at. The families themselves were great. Oftentimes, they, this wasn't their first encounter with law enforcement, so they had you know, other relatives or witnesses to prior abuse that they had suffered. They had neighbors that had suffered abuse at the hands of law enforcement that they put me in touch with. Some former deputies themselves reached out to me and were able to point me in the direction of different things and give their own accounts of what it was like working in the sheriff's department with these um, gang members with badges. And some, I, I gotta say, probably the the most central person who helped me out the most was a private investigator by the name of David Lynn, 
he's a former um, Marine. Yeah. Marine, yes. And he worked for the United Nations. He's had a, a crazy life. It should be a series of its own. Um, but he cut his teeth investigating these deputy gangs back in the 80s. And he's kept it up for the past 30 years. And yeah, he's like the OG of this. And he 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 was really central to this. And I don't think I could have pulled it off without him. I'm willing to bet that not a lot of people in Los Angeles know that there are deputy gangs in the LA Sheriff's Department. Why do you think that is? I think it's easy for people who don't live in places where the sheriffs patrol to forget about, you know, really how violent and how aggressive and how much power they have. Um, like I myself live in the city of Los Angeles, so I don't, I have very limited contact with sheriff's deputies. My contact with them primarily is when I'm going down to the courthouse to get more documents to investigate them. It's not like a regular thing for me. So I could see it being easy for someone who doesn't live in the city to be as tuned in. But I think that also, there's also a responsibility for us that live in the city to tune in because you know, we're, we're funding the sheriff's department, we pay taxes in Los Angeles County. So there there is a responsibility for people that aren't necessarily living in their jurisdiction to be aware of the terror that they're inflicting on people and the violence that families have suffered at their hands. Yeah, I've, I noticed that you made many mentions of either how much these officers who killed someone on duty, what their pension was like like how many hundreds of thousands of dollars they get in pension a year you also mention the money that is settled for in court usually like in the millions and i was curious what your purpose for doing that was was it to appeal to people who maybe money is like the thing that like tax dollars will make them see that you know like there's like tens of millions of dollars that are spent from like one gang alone on the the carnage that they cause? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think that this is something that everyone should be thinking about. You know, no matter where you stand on the line as far as, you know, police violence or police rights, whether you're Blue Lives Matter or uh, abolish the police, everyone can agree that, you know, we shouldn't be spending $100 million plus on settling these lawsuits. That's just, that's horrible no matter how you slice it. And I think everyone can agree on that. And I think that it's another thing that's severely underreported. Most people don't know that the money that goes to settle these lawsuits isn't coming out of the sheriff's department. It's coming out of the county's general fund. So that's money that I pay into. That's money that my neighbors pay into. That's money that everyone in Los Angeles pays into. So we're effectively financing these, these police murders which is which is horrible and it's not something that people are really aware of. I also don't think that most people are aware that the taxpayers are also responsible for the attorney fees. The county, they they hire these private firms that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars that litigate these cases to death and they have these bills that are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and we're responsible for that we're responsible for that. And these officers, they, they don't see any discipline and they're right back on the street. I mean, I, I don't, I find it hard to believe that anyone like wouldn't have a problem with some piece of that. So would you just be willing to describe kind of 
at its core what a deputy gang is within a department? Yeah, uh, they're a lot like um, street gangs. I think the the difference here is as a street gang, I mean, you can be affiliated with a street gang just by the virtue of where you're born or where you grew up. Um, and you don't have to necessarily participate in gang activities to be an affiliate. Deputy gangs, they are invented by law enforcement officers. In this case, we're talking about sheriff's deputies. Like criminal gangs, they are they're criminal enterprises. They engage in a variety of criminal activity, everything from extortion to murder. And they do it, you know, to further the reputation of the gang, to, you know, raise the gang's persona or credibility within the department. And they're able to do it without any punishment because they are law enforcement officers. So to the people within the gang, what's the purpose of joining one? So... The way that the sheriff's department and most police departments are set up and the way that they function, it's a very us versus them mentality. They look at the people that they're policing as potential criminals rather than a community that they are supposed to be protecting and in service to. So that's the mentality of people going into the sheriff's department. And In Los Angeles in particular, many people that have been a part of these deputy gangs have ascended to the highest ranks within the department. So it's seen culturally as a positive thing. People that are in these gangs are known as like the hard-charging, badass deputies that people want to be around. They're the guys that everybody likes, that they want to take out for a beer. They're always clapping on the back. They're popular at the station. They're the guys that everyone wants to be. So it's these gangs are viewed as basically like the cool kids club. Everyone wants to be a part. It's unusual if someone doesn't want to join a gang. When someone doesn't want to join a gang, they're seen as a nerd, a weirdo. They should be there's someone that is ostracized and not given not given backup on calls, which is potentially life threatening. They're even like beat up behind the station for not participating in the gang, for not as they say, going along with the program. And eventually they're they're pushed out of the department from either, you know, like people scheming against them at, or and conspiring or just, you know, making them feel so horrible and harassing them and intimidating them to the point that it's just not possible for them to go to work anymore. What are the consequences to not joining the gang? They'll do anything from just sort of making fun of you, um, calling you names perhaps pressure pressure someone to give money to a bogus charity for for women perhaps pressure them into a sexual favor i've heard of deputies having guns with live ammunition pointed at them i've heard of deputies having their property vandalized like tires popped um feces placed in their cars physical assaults being done people being beat up at the station there were two very public brawls that happened involving sheriff's deputies. By public, I mean they happened in public spaces, and there were civilians in attendance that witnessed it, where deputy gang members beat up deputies that had complained about them. I've heard of deputies that complained have been shot at um, 
have had their houses had drive-bys done on them while their children were sleeping in the front room. So it's it's really anything. They'll do anything to people. And do you feel like the same treatment is given to whistleblowers within the the sheriff's department, like people who have experienced this firsthand and either like complain to their superiors or speak out about it? Oh, yeah. They get that treatment. They'll get demoted. They'll get, you know, these bogus um, internal affairs investigations put on them. And like I said, they'll get pushed out of the department eventually just because, you know, either a bunch of bogus internal affairs investigations and discipline disciplinary checks have been put on them for whistleblowing or they're just so sick of the, you know, harassment and intimidation that I was just describing that they they actually fear for their lives. I one deputy, she she was so in fear for her life that she left the state completely after whistleblowing. So what are the ways that people within the gang cover for each other, whether it's like against other people within the department or when they're out on duty? So you'll typically see that uh, by deputies either lying on police reports, um, falsifying information. Some of them like rely on each other to write reports, like say if someone is has a high standing in the gang, they might rely on a prospect or um, sometimes they're called puppy to do their paperwork for them after um, a big bust. When there's a shooting, it's been alleged that deputy gang members will rely on others to cover up the shooting, to cover up any wrongdoing um, at the scene of the crime, to get them off the hook. Classic tampering with evidence. That's that's sort of the primary thing that we'll see. In your reporting, there's a lot of speak about like reverse engineering a crime scene or like a crime after killing or assaulting someone, they will essentially plant uh, a gun there. There's like a couple of instances that you point out specifically where like a criminologist is like, there's no like feasible way that this person had a gun and it like flew out of his waistband. That makes absolutely no sense that they'll do this, but then they won't even put the person's DNA on it. Like it's just, it's so half baked to the point where they'll still get away with it because there's just so much uh, strength in numbers. It seems. Yeah. 100%. And I, I hope that by shining a light on some of that stuff, you know, the people that have the power can change some of these processes. I mean, I, it boggles my mind that, you know, someone, you can have a gun with DNA on it and you know that it doesn't belong to the victim and someone is telling you, someone's making the decision to not further test it. I mean, we watch CSI, we watch NCIS, Law and Order, like that's, that's not how that shit goes in the movies. It's, it's crazy to me that in real life, things are so bungled and like you said, half-baked. I'm curious wh what you can say about when the order is given to work in the gray area. Can you describe what that means? Yeah, working in the gray area, that's a phrase that was um, popularized in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department by um, Paul Tanaka, who served as undersheriff, which is basically number two. Um, he's second only to the sheriff when it comes to command over the department. And Paul Tanaka, he is a Japanese-American man who joined the white supremacist gang called the Vikings. Um, and it's believed that he earned his stripes and earned full membership in the Vikings by killing a Korean-American man. And that was done. Mr. Lee, his name is Hung Pyo Lee, was killed by 12 shots to the back. And 
like I had mentioned earlier, this is he Paul Tanaka was given that promotion just a few weeks after the killing of Mr. Lee. And he went on to rise almost to the highest, highest position within the department. Once he held that position, he was known to go around to stations and at department events and to tell people to work in the gray area, to be like a wolf. And essentially what that meant is that to be an effective police officer, um, or rather to be an effective law enforcement officer, one had to move like a criminal, to bend the rules of the law to get stuff done. Like it would be okay to, you know, break, break a couple of laws if it meant bringing down a notorious criminal. Deputies really latched onto that. And unfortunately, it, it led to some pretty horrible things. I think you can draw a direct line to even a few deaths as a result of that policy. What is the purpose of killing or assaulting someone who is innocent and then later trying to find a reason that mm -hmm. they needed to be killed or, you know, to them? Like, yeah. I guess, what is the purpose of that? To make them, to justify them, to close the case, to you know, make them seem like, seem like they're good at their jobs. I think a good example of that is a case involving a young man named Sheldon Lockett. Sheldon was severely beaten by two um, deputies who are alleged to be in a deputy gang called the Executioners. And they, after beating Sheldon severely, they were actually involved with a, a fatal shooting death of a man named Dante Taylor. In Sheldon's case, uh, Sheldon took the bus from the Crenshaw district down to Compton. If you're not from LA, that's like a two hour bus ride. It's not fun. <laughs> um, and after taking the bus, he took a, he took an, a lift from the bus station to his godmother's house where he was meeting his friend. But while he was taking a lift, that lift, a shooting, there was a drive-by shooting um, on the other side of Compton from where his godmother's house is. Deputies, um, somehow pinned that drive-by on Sheldon, although he did not own a car, he just took the bus, and he did not match the description of the shooter. They detained him, beat him up, they kept him in jail for about seven months, and while he was in jail, even though it had come out by this time that he, he was taking the bus and there was physically no way he could have committed that drive-by shooting, they searched his parents' house looking for evidence that he had participated in that drive-by. Even though all this, all the evidence is mounting showing that these deputies had done a crap job, they're still so determined to make the case that they're willing to put this family through, you know, having their house torn apart by law enforcement officers just, just to make this case. And that case is still ongoing. Sheldon is still suffering to this day. Those officers didn't see any discipline, and then they went on to kill somebody. And too often, that's, that's how these stories go. So let's talk about the neighborhoods that are affected by these deputies. Can we conclude that most of them are within black and brown, predominantly black and brown oh, yeah. communities? Yeah, like almost exclusively. Um, and for a long time, the deputy gangs were confined to South Los Angeles and East Los Angeles, South Los Angeles being a historically black neighborhood, East Los Angeles being historically Latinx. Um, and now what we're seeing is that as both of those groups are pushed out of 
their historical neighborhoods and are moving into the Antelope Valley area, the deputy gangs are popping up there as well. What is the impact that the deputy gangs have on these communities that they're terrorizing, essentially? It's, it's astronomical. I don't, I don't think it can really be measured. I, hundreds of lives are torn apart. Lives are destroyed. Uh, gosh, I mean, e even if you survive um, an encounter with a deputy gang member, I've heard from so many people whose whose lives have been completely destroyed by this. I mean, it's it's not really something that's easy to get up from. From having, like, say, if you have charges put on you, it's it's difficult going against the state and trying to defend yourself and clear your name that's incredibly difficult not everyone has the luxury of an attorney and i think that you know my series was very i covered a lot but i i believe that there are so many stories that i i, I don't even know about because there are so many people that didn't have the resources to to fight these cases like if a deputy plants a gun on you i mean most people can't afford an attorney to you know counter that and get you out of jail most people end up taking a deal and serving the time because that comes with a definite end date rather than, you know, just being in limbo for God knows how long. Say your family member is killed by the sheriff's department and there's a lot of stories here where they're killed in front of their family and then, you know, the family will meet, perhaps try to like videotape it just to have some evidence their cell phone gets confiscated most times they get taken to the station to get detained what happens after that like what have you seen happens after they have essentially killed your family member what what then what's the recourse yeah i mean they make your life hell really like you said um i think when the incident like after the immediately after the shooting death of a family member they will like you said, take your phone, take any evidence of any wrongdoing by the department, and you'll never see it again. They'll take anyone that witnessed the event to the department and keep them there for hours, um, just again as intimidation. And then in the days that follow and the weeks and the months that pass by, the department, you know, deputies will go drive by your house slowly and maybe like flip you off as they drive by you know if you set up a uh, memorial or an altar at the site of your loved ones you know where your loved one died they may kick over the candles and threaten to arrest you if you gather there they might <laughs> follow you on instagram and watch all of your stories and post take screenshots of your profile and post it on their instagram and make fun of you i mean the harassment, it just, it continues and continues and continues. And that's another factor that drives many people out of Los Angeles. I've heard from many families that said, I couldn't deal with it anymore, so I left. I assume you spoke to a lot of people who had filed lawsuits, but like, what is that process like? Yeah, I mean, you can file a lawsuit, but that takes years. And as that's making its way through the court, the harassment continues. So a lawsuit isn't always like a way to solve it. And I think more often than not, and I, I think many families would agree with me, even like a settlement itself. I mean, that doesn't really change anything. It may change your financial circumstances, but the harassment still continues. Um, your family member is still dead and 
you know, your life isn't really any different than it was before. I noticed also that a lot of these families that would sue, they'd get a settlement perhaps before the case goes to trial. Is that correct? Yeah. Why is that? Like, why wouldn't it go to trial? Well, often what happens is that the county will move to settle when the attorney for the families uncovers some really, really noxious information about the sheriff's department. For example, in the Dante Taylor case, um, I believe that was a $7 million settlement that came down right after the judge ordered that the tattoos, or no, rather that um, the deputies had to be compelled to name all the other executioners. And then immediately the county was like, okay, well, we'll settle this for $7 million. And and that's what happens in, in really... 99% of these cases, and it's a gamble to go to trial is the other thing. For many families, you know, the, the opportunity to get some money to pay for their loved one and maybe even restart their lives in another state, like that's, I, I, that's something that is hard to turn down for many people. And I completely, I completely understand that because you're not always guaranteed to win a trial. One case that it really blew my mind that they lost in trial is the case of Gilberto Gutierrez, who was a man that was handcuffed to his hospital bed and shot point blank in the head by a sheriff's deputy. He's the one with the tattoo, right? Yeah, he had a tattoo that said, fuck the police. And the family lost the trial. And they had evidence that um, these gang, that these deputies got tattooed and joined the gang six months after the shooting and, and they lost. I, so, you know, hearing a story like that, as if you're a family member, that could be really frightening. And that might move you to settle too, because there's no guarantee that the jury is going to find in your favor. And so when these cases settle, also at the taxpayer's dollar, like we're essentially paying to protect the the deputy gang's identity and what's going on but it also doesn't allow more information to come to light so it's almost like a system in of itself to yeah exactly yeah we're like paying to keep ourselves ignorant so even after a case is settled and a family receives a settlement how often would you say that a deputy who did the killing or did the assaulting actually gets charged or faces never. consequences. Yeah. Never, never, not in any of the cases that I looked at and there were over 60. And what do you think the reasoning is for that? Well, I think a large reason is that the investigators for the district attorney's office are in the same union as sheriff's deputies. And that union isn't afraid to flex its muscles um, with the district attorney's office. And we've seen that, you know, right now with George Gascon, the sheriff's department doesn't like these policies that in, he's introduced that um, effectively ban sentencing enhancements. So w- what they've done is that they're they're now sending sheriff's deputies into court to just sit there and like, you know, be present to some of these proceedings, which is, you know, really not very ethical. And it's it's again, it's just intimidation because they don't like what's going on. They don't like the policies that the voters have chosen. And what would you say are, I mean, aside from like the DA and the sheriff's department, what are other systems in place, like just taking Los Angeles, for example, that help keep the system of deputy gangs in place? Um, Well, a lot of them are really 
they're in Los Angeles, but you can look nationally and see the same things like the power of the police unions here completely unchecked. And that's a problem that's present. in I want to say all 50 states, you know, we have the Peace Officers Bill of Rights at play here in California, which is a law that, you know, effectively makes the rest of us second class citizens to police officers. Um, and what I mean when I say that is that when a police officer or law enforcement officer is being questioned for a crime um, in the state of California, they're allowed to meet with a union representative, a lawyer, and review all evidence of the crime and the case against them before they have to answer questions, uh, which is ridiculous to me. Um, and I think everyone, that's another thing that I think everyone should be outraged by, whether you are pro or against police. Uh, I think we can all agree that everyone should be equal and police officers shouldn't be in a class above everyday people. Another thing is qualified immunity. Um, the fact that you know, these law enforcement officers can't be sued individually for these crimes. So that means that, you know, all those payments are coming out of the department that families can't go after them individually. I think that would make, you know, a huge, a huge difference if the officers themselves were actually responsible for the deaths that they cause. The families of, you know, these parents or kids or siblings of the people that were killed specifically that you have spoke to, um, what are some of the things you've learned about the grief and the loss that um, these people have experienced after their loved one is killed by a deputy? Yeah, um, gosh, I mean, the fa one family story that I think about a lot is the story of Brian Pickett, who was a young man um, that was killed by sheriff's deputies a few years ago. And he was the father of three. He was a family man. He loved to cook, he coached youth football. He also was an up and coming rapper, was very popular in the Long Beach area. Yeah, Brian had um, a bright future. He had just welcomed his third son nine days before he was murdered. I have spoken a bit with his his girlfriend and his mother the loss i mean gosh it's it's really devastating to to speak with them his mother she she's still very much processing brian's death it's not really very real to her when i sent her the article she told me that she couldn't finish it just because it was too real and it's that seeing her suffer like that it, it it hurts it physically hurts me his girlfriend and this is something his mother has talked about too they wanted to get married so you know every time that they talk about the situation that's sort of a reminder to them that you know they weren't able to walk down the aisle and make that happen like i mentioned she she had just given birth when brian was killed what she said to me is she said talk about postpartum when as far as that goes and i mean i can't even i can't imagine what that was like having a newborn baby and having his father gone so quickly she's she's carrying a lot of a lot of pain another part of um to my story is she actually works for the county of los angeles which is incredibly difficult i, I this is another thing. I can't imagine punching in to, 
you know, the the body of government that is responsible for the death of your husband. Like, that's... I, I, I don't know how she does that. I really don't. And that's another case that's ongoing. So, you know, she told me that she just tries to keep her head down and get in and get out and get the job done and raise her family. And that's that's getting harder as each day passes because her sons are growing up and they're starting to look like the types of people that are targeted by the police department. And she's terrified that that cycle is going to continue. She lives in fear every day that one of her sons will be subject to the treatment that their father um, received. Even before his death, Brian was harassed by police, pulled out of cars and handcuffed. And she fears that that's what's going to happen to her sons. I spoke to another family where that actually is what happened. A young man by the name of Paul Rea. His father was killed when he was just 18 years old by sheriff's deputies. And when Paul turned 18 years old, he was killed by sheriff's deputies. And I'm sure that there are many more families with stories like that. Uh, it's, it's too common. It's way too common out here. Have you spoken to a lot of people whose parents were, were killed by the sheriff's department? Most of the families that I'm aware of where children um, survive, the children are very young. I think that probably the oldest would be Brian, Brian Pickett's children and the oldest is eight. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that's another, that's another sad element of this. I mean, these kids aren't really going to have any memory of their parents. And there's always going to be that hole there and that knowledge that, you know, your parent, your parent's life was, was taken by the state. And I, I can't imagine living with that weight over my head. It's something that I think about a lot too. Like my mom passed when I was six, but it was from cancer. And so like cancer is, is not a person. It's not like a thing that I encounter on the street. I, I have yet to interview anyone who was killed at the hands of another person. And I imagine that that grief is just so fucking different because of the fact that like if it was in the LASD, they were likely promoted for killing your family member or they were celebrated for it or they got like another flame on their tattoo or whatever. Mm -hmm. And second, that this person, which is common in, in your reporting, is that if they do it once, it's very possible they will do it again and then terrorize another family. And I can't yeah. imagine the the inability to even grieve. Like, the, how do you accept or how do you how do you move through that? Yeah, I that's probably been like another like really devastating part of the conversations that I've had is sharing with families that, you know, the guy who killed your brother, or your husband, he went on to kill again. And there's another family that's going through exactly what you're going through right now. And this guy is still working at the department, still collecting his paychecks and nothing has been done. Yeah. And there, there's even the story I remember. Was it Terry? Lafitte? Yes. Terry Lafitte, where he was killed in his front yard and his, his sister and his nieces and nephews were inside. They came out. They saw him get shot. And then they got carted away. And then the neighbors told them that the deputies were all just like hanging around the dead body, like joking and laughing. I just can't like 
the um, the imagery of that after your the closest person in your life has just been taken away and by people like I I truly cannot imagine the like fear and trauma that is instilled in people's brains after that and like the PTSD you must feel all the time like even Anthony Vargas's aunt the quote about how I haven't felt safe since 2018 is just like haunting yeah yeah and so many people live like that in this county so many people live in that fear like most people who are listening to this podcast you have also lost a parent and my first question really is like how have you protected yourself during this reporting period and taking care of yourself knowing that you're just like re-exposing yourself to grief over and over again especially like people who've lost like a male family member like a father the oldest kid that you had encountered that had lost a parent was eight and that's how old you were as well what was that experience like to probably like see an eight-year-old and be like holy shit that was me it's really enlightening for like my own grieving process because I think I'm still grieving my father today we were really close I mean it's my memories of him are very limited because I was so young so it's it's mostly like fond memories of like going to the park learning how to ride a bike losing my first tooth what else have I got going to the beach hiking eating cookies and ice cream lots of kids stuff um but as I become an adult I really it's nice to have those memories, but I also feel, I, I I definitely wish I could have like a dad to talk to about certain things, like, because I don't have a relationship with my mother, like I, I definitely yearn for a parental figure. So I, I definitely think about him a lot. I think about questions that I would ask him. There's a lot I don't know about my dad also because I was a kid when he died. So I wonder about like, if he would like the kind of music that I like, if he would approve of the amount of cannabis that I smoke, um, <laughs> what he would think about, you know, what I've done with my life. Um, if he would like the person that I am, that's, I think about that stuff all the time. One of the first things that you said on the episode was that a good journalist questions everything. And it seems like you have so many questions and so much curiosity. I wonder if that is correlated at all I think so that's that's a good connection to make yeah yeah if if I could talk to my dad it would just be like probably an interview session I have so many questions (laughs) (laughs) after my father passed I lived with my mom and she that was a very bad situation um, and I was very quickly removed and I didn't I lived basically in foster care. Um, I didn't have a relationship with my mother. I, I still don't. So when my dad passed, it really was like the death of my my family, really. I didn't have my mom anymore. And I was cut off from, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins. And it was just basically me, which, you know, presented a whole other <laughs> bunch of issues that I had to work through. So his loss, like it, it really, yeah, it completely, completely changed my life. I, I'm not really sure like what my life would be if, if he hadn't passed. 
I'm, I mean, I'm able to relate to these children really well too, because I think I, I very much see myself in them. A lot of the emotions are very familiar to me, how they like move and are processing things. Like it's, it's another thing that I deeply relate to. And it's, I mean, it's also like really disturbing to see children going through something like that. I mean, it's a little different for some of the reasons that you were speaking about with your mom. Um, you know, it's, my father also died of cancer so it's it's sort of like a foreign a foreign thing like it's it's an ambiguous concept it's not really something that i can like get angry at or like visit like vent my frustration at what's really sad to see is just like how how traumatized these kids are and just how hopeless things can quickly become kids they're taught like they're fed propaganda really that the police are good that the police are here to save you and that's just been very violently turned on its head and the resulting you know psychological trauma that comes with that can be really hard to to witness and to go through as well i think a lot of journalists like become very jaded um just because we see a lot of really awful shit all the time um so th there's a lot of gallows humor in most newsrooms. And I think that while like I'm definitely someone that like not thrives in trauma, but like I'm able to navigate it very well. And it's not strange to me. Like I like the shows that I watch to unwind are like true crime documentaries and like cop dramas. So like I'm just like trauma all the time. But I haven't cut off like my empathy either. Like I can hear a really horrible story and still feel something very deeply. Like there are times when I'm interviewing people like, gosh, they don't know this, but I've had to mute the phone because like I'm crying myself and I have to pull myself together. And I think a lot of a lot of reporters lose that as time goes on. I mean, it's very easy to do. And like, I've definitely been guilty of it myself sometimes but I think it's important to to keep that alive like just for the sake of your hum humanity as well as for the sake of your career yeah I think that that is your empathy is like a huge superpower in that way every story that you tell or every person that you've written about in this 15-part series of victims and their family like I feel like I have such a sense of them like the details that you pull out like that he loves to barbecue, but he's actually like not very good at it. Like that is just like, I know that person. Whereas, yeah, if we like bring it back to the first thing that we talked about is that unfortunately with a lot of journalism, it's humanizing the police officer and not humanizing right. the person that they terrorized. I can relate to the grief that, you know, most of the families that are going through. Um, in the series, all of the people that were killed were men of color. And that's something that I can um, relate to very closely. What they were experiencing wasn't wasn't strange or new to me. It was something very familiar. And I was able to ask questions and sort of talk to them in a way that I think many other reporters maybe aren't able to, um, maybe because they haven't experienced that or for whatever reason. As far as protecting myself from grief, I probably did a really bad job at that, um, to be perfectly honest. I was very nose to the grindstone with this reporting process, and I didn't take any breaks. 
and it was very overwhelming. I broke down a few times just crying and just feeling really overwhelmed. I mean, because I mean, for some of the reasons that I was just talking about, it, it feels like you can't really change this stuff. And even now, I mean, I've written this 15 part series, but I'm not confident that's that it's going to, you know, make things any better for any of the people that I'm trying to help. Okay, so people listen to this podcast and they read the 15 part investigative report, they share it out, whatnot. What are things that like the average civilian can do do to mitigate harm that the deputy gangs will will cause in their neighborhoods or in their communities? Yeah, I mean, it really takes a lot of um, active engagement by the part of like, if if this resonates with you, or this makes you angry, like, I, I truly hope that you will tap in because any sort of change will really take the effort of everyone, um, because this has been going on for so long. And it's so cemented in the systems of government, it's, it's going to take something radical, and it will take a lot of people to make any sort of change, no matter how small or minimal happen. There are a couple of things that can that can be done to sort of not completely get rid of the sheriff's department. I'm not really sure how to do that. But there, there are several things that we can do to um, sort of lessen the impact of the amount of trauma that they're allowed to inflict. You know, the first thing I would recommend is getting rid of the Peace Officers Bill of Rights, um, which I just explained. And we're seeing across the country that that's that's a movement that's gaining more steam and Maryland actually just became the first state to repeal it. So, you know, there is some inertia there and I hope that it continues to be propelled across the country. Another thing that we can do is getting rid of qualified immunity. And that's another movement that is going on nationwide and can easily be engaged with. There's a bill right now in the California legislature that is taking a look at that. So, you know, that's, just calling your representative and sending an email and just telling them that this is something that you care about. And here in Los Angeles, we have a coalition called Check the Sheriff, which is, you know, built around those things and another of other initiatives. They have petitions um, going on for an array of issues related to the sheriff's department. So I would recommend checking in with them as well and, you know, seeing where you can assist them. Thank you for listening to this episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead. If you'd like to learn more about Cerise Castle, her website is cerisecastle.me. That's C-E-R-I-S-E-C-A-S-T-L-E dot M-E. You can follow her at Cerise Castle on Twitter. Again, that's C-E-R-I-S-E-C-A-S-T-L-E. And if you'd like to support her and her work, her Venmo is Cerise-Castle. If you'd like to read Cerise's 15-part series on the L.A. Sheriff's Department deputy gangs, you can read it at knock-la.com. And you can support their Patreon at patreon.com slash knock underscore L.A. As an independent and nonprofit news source, Knock L.A. does not accept money from ad revenue, affiliate revenue, or brand sponsorship deals. They only accept community support. The music in this episode is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna. <laughs>